Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing the rapture. If you have uh, any questions on this topic, feel free to call in at 515-602-9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com, and that's Catholic with a K. And the four persons is the, the number four, persons.com. I am also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So the rapture is the is what got me into apologetics in the very beginning. <laughs> My son introduced me to the Left Behind books, and after reading them, um, I got more interested in the pre-tribulation rapture, and that led me to Scott Hahn and Tim Staples, who saved me from falling into the rapture trap. Yet, the idea of the pre-tribulation rapture... uh, is pretty common and rather popular these days. Many Christians believe in this rapture, and some of them believe that the Bible says that there will be a pre-tribulation rapture. Some say the Bible says there will be a mid-tribulation rapture. And some say the Bible says there will be a post-tribulation rapture. Some say there will be all three. And all these interpretations come from some verses in the Bible and some person's understanding of them. But some churches don't teach the doctrine of the rapture. All the churches started before 1800 don't teach the rapture. And even some of them that did start in the 1800s don't teach the rapture. The churches that don't teach the rapture include the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, Reformed and Presbyterian Churches, the Anglican, Episcopal, Methodist, and Wesleyan Churches, the Quakers, the Church of Christ, and the Amish. Some modern evangelical Bible churches teach you are saved by confessing Jesus as your Savior. Then you are guaranteed to go to heaven and you can develop your own personal relationship with Jesus on your terms. Some also teach that the rapture will take away all the believers before anything really bad happens. It is a great promotional idea that has brought many people into their churches. So think about it. If all you have to do is confess Jesus and 
you're guaranteed that nothing bad's going to happen to you, why wouldn't you sign up? The reason so many Protestant churches don't teach the rapture doctrine is because the rapture doctrine was invented in the 1830s by a man named John Nelson Darby, who was inspired by the private fever-induced revelations of a 16-year-old girl named Margaret MacDonald. Darby's interpretation of the Bible was promoted through the Movie Bible Institute, Gofield Study Bible, and Dallas Theological Seminary. John Walvrood is considered the dean of the pre-tribulation rapture at the Dallas, Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote a book called The Rapture Question. In his book, he writes, The early church did not teach the 20th century pre-tribulationalism. He also writes, The early church teaching can only be described as post-tribulational. And he also writes, The early church fathers were post-tribulational. Now, amongst the Protestants that believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, they believe that in the pre-tribulation rapture point, point to this part of the Bible as the foundation of their belief. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, that is, raptured, together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Pre-trib rapture-believing Protestants support this catching away of believers with verses from Matthew chapter 24 and Luke 17, where it says, one will be taken and one will be left. However, we need to back up here a little bit and look at some foundational verses that were written before Thessalonians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, well, it gives us a good foundation on what will happen when Jesus returns. Starting at verse 50, it says, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? So from this we understand that at the last trumpet, the bodies will be raised, the dead bodies will be raised, and all those who are alive will get their immortal and imperishable body. And those that were dead will also get their immortal 
and imperishable bodies. So with that foundation, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, the coming of the Lord, starting at verse 13. But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep. That's the dead people from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you may not grieve as those others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for having died. For this we declare to you by the word of God, of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. So again, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the dead are raised first, and then the people who are alive at that time. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with an archangel's call, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, nowhere in this chapter does it say that Jesus returns to heaven after catching up the faithful, living, and dead. Also, the loud trumpets and people rising from the grave will tell us that Jesus' second coming will not be a mysterious disappearance of believers. If you read the Left Behind books or watch the Left Behind movies, it shows that people are just suddenly disappear, and nobody knows why. But the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, and some people will be caught up in the air to meet him, that there will be loud trumpets blasting, and the dead will rise from the graves first, and then the faithful will be caught up to the Lord. Check out what it says in Matthew chapter 24. Starting at verse 27, it says, For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. The coming of the Son of Man, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, the necessity for watchfulness. But of the day and the hour, 
no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so it will become, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one is taken and one is left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know, that, but know this, that if the householder had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. From this we learn that after, note this, after the tribulation, the coming of the Son of Man will be accompanied by lightning and earth-shaking, and the sun and the moon will be darkened. We also see that the bad people are, and we also see that the bad people end up where the vultures are. So again, it Matthew verse or Matthew chapter twenty-four tells us that there will be lightning flashes, angels blowing trumpets, and this will be the second coming of Jesus, and that goes perfectly with First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen and First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Luke's gospel gives us some more clarity about the people, what happens to some of the people. Yes. In Luke chapter 17, we get the same story, starting at verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky, and from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be at in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married, and they were given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it will be in the days of Lot. I'm sorry. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and brimstone rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let him who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let him who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to gain his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed, 
One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. So the ones that are taken away go to where the vultures gather. The coming of the Son of Man will be accompanied by lightning flashes, thunder, and earth shaking. It will be like in the days of Noah and Lot, where the bad people are taken away in the flood or the destruction of Sodom, and the good people were left behind in the ark or as Lot and his family. It also provides clarification where the people taken go to. Jesus also tells us about the second coming in John chapter 6. Starting at verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Chapter 11 tells us, uh, starting at verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And John chapter 12 tells us, he, starting at verse 48, he who rejects me does not and does not receive my sayings has a judge. The word that I have spoken will be his judge on the last day. These chapters tell us that Jesus will raise us and judge us on the last day. The last day is when Jesus returns to earth at his second coming. The Bible says that we are not appointed to wrath, but it doesn't say that we are not appointed to tribulation. Wrath is punishment by God. Tribulation is testing by God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul tells us we will have to endure tribulation. In John chapter 16, it says, I have told you this, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In Matthew chapter 4, 24, it says that we will have to endure the great tribulation. In Acts 14, 22, it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So some Protestants, you know, to support the idea of the pre-trib rapture, say that, you know, the church is the bride of Christ and why would Jesus beat up his bride? And it, they talk about how the church is not appointed to wrath. But we have to understand the difference between tribulation and wrath. 
wrath is the punishment that is given to those that don't believe in Jesus, but tribulation is given to the faithful to prove their faithfulness, refines our faithfulness. We find out what we are willing to give up to continue to follow Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, it says that when Jesus comes back, he will be coming in the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. All believers and non-believers will see Jesus when he returns. Only those that are fully holy will enter heaven, according to Revelation chapter 20. The book of Revelation covers events from the point where Satan was expelled from heaven to the destruction of the first Jerusalem to the construction of the new Jerusalem. However, when you look at the book of Revelation as it relates to the Mass, you see that the readings of the letters in the first four chapters corresponds to the Liturgy of the Word, where we have four Bible readings in Mass. Then John is caught up to heaven for the heavenly Eucharistic liturgy. This is the wedding supper of the Lamb, where Jesus and his church bride are per permanently united at his second coming. John chapter 6 tells us Jesus will raise us up on the last day. John chapter 12 tells us the final judgment is on the last day. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us there will be a loud trumpet call, and the faithful dead and living will be caught up in the air to meet Jesus as he comes down to earth. Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 17 tell us that Jesus is only coming back once, on the last day. He's not coming back a half a time and then coming back a full time. There are some early church fathers that wrote about the rapture, and some rapture believers point to some of these early church fathers to support their beliefs. When they, when read with a rapture doctrine mindset, they can be interpreted to support, when these writings are read in context of all the author's writings, and the struggles of the Catholic Church in the first 300 years, they are easily interpreted as referring to the struggles of the Church in their times. To interpret them as referring to the rapture would also put the rapture in their time, not ours. Knowing the big picture keeps a person from seeing the rapture in these few sentences of many of these Catholic Christians that many of these Catholic Christians wrote. All the Catholic Christians referred to here also taught the same Catholic understanding of baptismal regeneration, the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, the primacy of the Church in Rome, and the sinlessness of Mary as the new Eve. None of the Protestant churches of the first 300 years, 1520, taught the doctrine of the rapture. So 
you can say like Protestantism started in 1520 with Martin Luther, but it wasn't until 300 years later that the idea of the pre-tribulation rapture was invented. In 150 AD, Justin Martyr wrote in his Dialogue with Trifo, chapter 80, Trifo says, but tell me, do you really admit that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt, and do you expect your people to be gathered together and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets, both the men of our nation and other proselytes who joined them before your Christ came? And Justin answers, I'm not so miserable a fellow, Trifo, as to say one thing and think another. I have admitted to you formally that I and many others are of this opinion and believe that such will take place, as you assuredly are aware. But on the other hand, I signified to you that many who belong to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and warned and enlarged, as the prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others declare. Here, Justin is speaking about the new heavenly kingdom Jesus will bring and does not specifically mention a new temple just a new city. And the book of Revelation tells us that Jesus is the temple in heaven. The thousand-year reign in this new everlasting kingdom here on earth, or the thousand-year reign is the new everlasting kingdom of God here on earth. For the Jews, the number 10 was the number of completion. To multiply 10 by 10 by 10 equals 1,000. And this is to show that the kingdom was now fully complete. The Jews didn't have a way of saying good, better, best. They would just repeat the adjective multiple times to emphasize it. So since 10 was the number of completion, by going 10 times 10 times 10, which equals 1,000, they're showing that it's really complete. Because when Jesus second, sets up his second kingdom, it will be really complete. It will be an everlasting kingdom. Irenaeus uh, wrote a book around 180 AD, and the book is called referred to generally as Against Heresies. In Book 5, Chapter 29, Paragraph 1, he writes, And therefore, when in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said, There shall be tribulation such as not has been from the beginning, neither shall be. For this is the last contest of the righteous, in which when they overcome, they are crowned with incorruption. A rapture believer might take this to say that the Christians will be caught up before the tribulation. 
but first Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that the believers will be caught up to meet Jesus as he returns to establish his new kingdom here on earth. Neither first Thessalonians chapter 4 or Irenaeus tells us that these believers are caught up to heaven while the rest endure tribulation on earth. The great tribulation will be the last contest for the righteous. They will need to be here on earth to endure it, to show their faithfulness. Therefore, they will not be caught up until after the tribulation. Treatises of Cyprian. We who see the terrible things have begun and know their there and know that still more terrible things are imminent may regard it as the greatest advantage to depart from it as quickly as possible do not do you not give god thanks do you not congratulate yourself that by an early departure you are taken away from taken away and delivered from the shipwrecks and disasters that are imminent. Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own house, which snatches us hence and sets us free from the snares of the world and restores us to paradise and the kingdom. Cyprian says that there, Cyprian says here that the terrible times, tribulation, have begun and will get worse soon. If these sentences refer to the rapture, then it has already happened in his time. The great advantage of departing quickly is when the Christians were martyred without torture. There were many waves of persecution during the Roman Empire, which could appear as the shipwrecks coming soon, which again was then and not now. These sentences do not refer to the rapture, since Cyprian says, let us greet the day which assigns each of us in his own home. It can also be referred to the individual's death and when they would, be, would go to the paradise of the kingdom of heaven. You have to start with a rapture mentality to read this, the rapture into these sentences. Cyprian is writing about his, the troubles of his time, not ours or the time to come. He is offering encouragement to the Christians of his time who are suffering persecution. And this is another thing that he wrote about on the last times. Cyprian, that is. Or do you not believe unless you see with your eyes see to it that this sentence be not fulfilled among you of the prophet who declares woe to those who desire to see the day of the lord for all the saints and the elect of god are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the lord lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins and so brothers most dear to me, it is the eleventh hour, and the end of the world comes to the harvest, and angels armed and prepared hold sickles in their hands, awaiting the empire of the Lord, 
and we think the earth exists with blind infidelity arriving at its downfall early. Commotions are brought forth, wars of diverse peoples and battles and incursions of the barbarians threaten and our regions are desolate, desolated and we neither become very much afraid of the report nor of the appearance in order that we may at least do penance because they hurl fear at us and we do to be changed, although we at least stand in the presence of our actions. Here, Cyprian is writing about the Christianity of his time. He refers to his time as the 11th hour, wars with the barbarians and the end of the world, which would therefore have happened in his time, not ours. Cyprian encourages Christians to not ignore the chance to do penance before the end of the world. Again, you have to start with a rapture mindset to see the rapture in these sentences. Again, they actually refer to events at Cyprian's time, not ours. Now we'll get into a little on where this rapture idea came from. The idea of the perbulation rapture as it is taught today didn't come up until John Nelson Darby in the early 1800s who invented dispensationalism which led to his new interpretation of the Bible. Darby thought that God's salvation plan for the Jews was still in effect. Therefore he had to invent a way for the Christians to be taken away from the earth so God could save the Jews again. In the last eight years, three writings have been discovered that show a pre-tribulation rapture was believed and taught by some early Christians, but this idea was not present among most early Christian writers. In 1260, Gerard Sagarello found the apostolic, founded the Apostolic Brethren after his application for membership with the Franciscans was rejected. The founding of new religious orders was strictly forbidden by the Pope and several church councils. Therefore, the church tried to abolish the apostolic brethren. In the 1300s, their leader, Gerard, was arrested and subjected to an inquisition. After he refused to accept correct church teaching, he was turned over to the state for sentencing. Since citizens were required to hold the faith of the state, Gerard was burned at the stake for treason. Brother Dalcino, who had been a member of the Apostolic Brethren for a number of years, took over leadership of the order around 1304. At one point under his leadership, the Apostolic Brethren had grown to about 4,000 members. The persecuted order under Dalcino's leadership withdrew to the mountains, mountainous areas of northern Italy near Novara and Vercelli. But the size of the order and their need for daily sustenance resulted in clashes with local authorities. In 1306, a bull was drawn up by Pope Clement V 
and a crusade was launched against them. In 1307, over 400 members of the Apostolic Brethren were killed by armed forces with the authority of the Pope. Dulcina was captured, mutilated, and burned at the stake for treason. Morgan Edwards discovered a statement by Pseudo-Ephraim in 1744 and later published it in 1788. Edwards claimed that Pseudo-Ephraim wrote about his pre-tribulation rapture beliefs. The original writing was delivered by the church father Ephraim of Nisbis, but was published soon after in the name of Pseudo-Ephraim. This was a common practice back then that you know somebody would take the teachings of a bishop or early church father, write them down, and then it would be uh, considered like pseudo-Ephraim. So a person would write down what he understood from that bishop or church father and then attribute that church father or bishop's name to the writing, even though that bishop or early church father didn't actually write it. However, the fact that the Apocalypse of Ephraim of Nisbis was replicated centuries later by Pseudo-Ephraim has led to the confusion about identities of the two persons and the dating of the manuscript. In addressing the question of the authorship of the sermon, this article explains the political and religious milieu and mindset of Ephraim of Nisbis and Pseudo-Ephraim, respectively, within late antiquity and the Middle Ages. So we have two conflicting writings from Ephraim of Nisbis, one that is more authentic than the other, and the one that is more authentic does not teach the rapture, but Pseudo-Ephraim has verses that could be interpreted to support the pre-tribulation rapture. But pseudo-Ephraim is more suspect than the real Ephraim. Now here's a Catholic view on the end times. Because once you learn about all the wrong stuff that the Protestants teach, it's good to know what the Catholic Church actually teaches. The Catholic Church and the Bible teach that Jesus can come back at any time. Because the Bible says, no one knows the day or the hour or the hour, yes. And we should always be prepared for his second coming. Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour that his return will be, and that his return will be like a thief in the night. We find that in Matthew chapter 24. This is why we always need to keep ourselves in a state of grace. One of the signs of Jesus' return is the rise of the Antichrist. There will be a large percentage of the Jews that will return to Jesus and become Christians, or fulfilled Jews. Those anticipating Jesus' return may be caught up to meet him as he returns to earth to set up his kingdom. Then there will be the final judgment, where all our past deeds will be revealed, and we will see how they affected the rest of the world. We find that in Revelation chapter 20. We will see God's justice for those who are headed to hell. 
we will also see how our good deeds affected others and how many times God has forgiven us of, for our sins. Everyone heading to heaven will be fully filled with grace, but some will have a greater capacity to be, to be fulfilled grace based on their deeds in life. You can think of your deeds here on earth in service to the Lord as building a larger cup or a barrel or a water tower. And in the end, our shot glass, our cup, our bucket, our barrel or water tower will be completely filled with grace. If your deeds build a water tower, you'll have a lot of grace. The Catechism of the Catholic Church covers the end times in paragraphs 668 to 682 and 1021 and 1038 to 1041. Jesus' second coming in brief, starting at paragraph 680. Christ the Lord already reigns through his church, but all the kings of the, this world are not yet subjected to him. The triumph of Christ's kingdom will not come about without one last assault by the powers of evil. Paragraph 681 tells us, On Judgment Day, at the end of the world, Christ will come in glory to achieve the definitive triumph of good over evil, which, like the wheat and the tares, have grown up together in the course of history. Paragraph 682 tells us, When he comes at the end of time to judge the living and the dead, the glorious Christ will reveal the secret disposition of hearts and will render to each man according to his works and according to his acceptance or refusal of grace. So the more you accept of God's grace, the more you will have of it. Death and judgment is covered in paragraph 1021. Death puts an end to human life as the time open to either accepting or rejecting the divine grace manifested in Christ. The New Testament speaks of judgment primarily in its aspect of the final encounter with Christ in his second coming but also repeatedly affirms that each will be re rewarded immediately after death in accordance with his works and faith. The parable of the poor man Lazarus and the, the words of Christ on the cross to the good thief, as well as other New Testament texts, speak of the final destiny, destiny of the soul, a destiny which can be different for some and for others. At death, we will be either headed to heaven or hell. And if you're heading to heaven, the your reward in heaven will be based on the works you did while here on earth. And here we have from the Catechism, Judgment in Brief, starting at paragraph 1051. Every man receives his eternal recompense in his immortal soul from the moment of his death in a particular judgment by Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. Paragraph 1052 tells us, 
We believe that the souls of all who die in Christ's grace are the people of God beyond death. On the day of resurrection, death will be definitively conquered when these souls will be reunited with their bodies. And paragraph 1053 tells us, we believe that the multitude of those gathered around Jesus and Mary in paradise forms the church of heaven, where in eternal blessedness they see God as he is and where they are also, to various degrees, associated with the holy angels and the divine governance exercised by Christ in glory, by interceding for us and helping our weakness by their fraternal concern. Paragraph 1054 tells us that those who die in God's grace and friendship imperfectly imperfectly purified, although they are assured by their eternal salvation, undergo a purification after death so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The Catholic Church does teach that there is a rapture if you are still alive at Jesus' second coming, and you will be caught up to meet him in the air as he comes down to set up his second kingdom here on earth. And when he gets here, all the dead will rise and everybody will get their immortal and perfected human body. But we will not be caught up to Jesus as he's coming down and go back to heaven will just stay with him as he's coming down to earth. And this is a tradition that we see even today in that um, when a special person is coming into town, a lot of people will go out to meet them at the airport um, or as their motorcade is coming into town, things like that. So it's a longstanding tradition uh, even like, you know, when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, where we talk about it on Palm Sunday, and Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, a lot of people go outside the city of Jerusalem to meet him, and they lay down their cloaks and then the palm branches so that as Jesus is riding in on the donkey and stirring up dust, uh, that helps to reduce the amount of dust kicked up by the donkey so that people can see him coming into town. And it would be a sign of honor to keep the dust off the, the special person coming into the city. There have been many predictions of the end of the world where the second coming would be, and all of them so far have been wrong. There is a false prophet called Harold Camping who last predicted the end of the world in 1994. And since that already passed, he was then predicting it to happen in 2011. And that didn't happen either. And the reason is, is that we do not know the day of the hour, even though many of the people that make these predictions 
think they can figure it out. But Jesus tells us that no one knows the day or the hour. And many, only God knows the day or the hour of Jesus' second coming. Because God is the one who is in control. Now, even in the first century, there, when when Jesus was with us in the first century, he talked about how you know some may will not see death before his second coming. So, in 44 A.D., a guy named Theudas declared himself the Messiah, and taking 400 people with him into the desert. They, he thought like he was setting up the new kingdom of heaven out there in the desert. But he was beheaded by Roman soldiers. And the early Jewish historian Josephus recorded this. In 53 AD, even before all the books of the Bible were written, there was talk that Christ's return had already taken place. The Thessalonians panicked on Paul when they heard a rumor that the day of the Lord was at hand and they had missed the rapture. In 80 AD, Ben Zechariah died and he claimed to be the expected Messiah at the time of his death. Between 100 and 200 AD, Rabbi Eliezer Ben Hircus thought the days of the Messiah would last 40 years. Before the Bar Kokhba Messiah age, or not long after that. Rabbi, in 130 AD, Rabbi Jose the Galilean, a contemporary of Hyrcanus and Azariah, thought the Messiah would come in three generations, 60 years, after the destruction, namely 130 AD. In 381 AD, it was predicted, the return of Christ was predicted by Tychonus, a writer in the 4th century. In 400 AD, Hippolytus of Rome, who's a bishop there, calculated that 5,500 years separated Adam and Christ, and the rest of the world was 6,006 full days of years from the 7th the day of rest. His calculations in 234 indicated there will be that there will still be two centuries left. Yeah. So Hippolytus lived in the 200s and he reckoned that there were still two centuries left, which would have put the second coming of Christ around 434 A.D., but that didn't happen. In, also in 400, Rabbi Doza said the Messiah would come at the end of 400 years. And this was based on his interpretation of Genesis 15.13. In 
435 AD, Rabbi Judah Na, Rabbi Judah Ha Nazi predicted that the Messiah would come 365 years after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And still it didn't happen. Messiah Rabbi, Rabbi Hananiah also wrote in 470 AD, thought that the Messiah would come 400 years after the temple destruction, which would have put it at 470 AD. In 500 AD, a Roman priest and theologian in the 2nd and 3rd centuries predicted Christ would return in 500 AD based on the dimensions of Noah's Ark. So you see, men have been trying to figure out when Jesus' second coming is based on information in the Bible, calculations, but none of it has worked out yet. That's because nobody knows the day or the hour. And some people interpreting Hippolytus of Rome and Lysantius uh, also predicted that the second coming of Christ would be in 500 AD. Now, around 1000 AD, uh, many people thought that this was the end of the thousand years of Christ's reign here on earth as the church. And so many people thought that Jesus would be coming after the year 1000 or around the year 1000. But actually back in the early 300s, Augustine wrote about how the thousand years of Christ's reign here on earth was the church age. And the church age lasts as long as it takes for Jesus to come back for the second time. And again, as I mentioned earlier, for the Jews who didn't have a way to say good, better, and best, they would just repeat over and over. So for the Jews, the number of completion is 10, and 10 times 10 times 10 equals 1,000. So 1,000 just means the complete church age, not specifically 1,000 years. The Bible contains a lot of great information for us to understand what Jesus taught, but we can see by the large variety of uh, Protestant churches that the Bible needs to be interpreted, and a lot of people interpret the Bible wrong. Here are five reasons why 1000 AD was not really a significant date. People did not even know the date. The peasants at that time had no notion of chronological time. And the elites of that day, the learned people, used a variety of systems, and even those using AD disagreed on exactly what year it was. And there Number two, there are no theological reasons for 1,000 to have an 
eschatological significance. People saw 1,000 in the Bible and interpreted it as that has to be exactly 1,000. But it doesn't actually have to be that way. Number three, there is almost no surviving evidence of any apocalyptic terrors from the period. Apocalyptic terrors from the period. The little that survives is not directly related to 1000, but to dates such as 968, 1010, and 1033. And the fifth reason is, therefore, we should not be surprised to find that 1000 was a year like any other year in which the normal train of medieval life, wars, councils, plowing, praying, went on in an uninterrupted flow. Now, throughout the Middle Ages, there were various famines and catastrophes and wars, and a lot of people thought that that was indications of the end of the world and Jesus' second coming, and they were all wrong. Um, in the early 1800s, when the rapture idea was being invented, John Wesley, who was from the Plymouth Brethren, wrote that the time, times, and half a time of Revelation 12:14 were 1058 to 1836, when Christ would come again. But he didn't come at that time. And uh, in the early 1900s, the Jehovah Witnesses started predicting that Jesus was coming back then, and they've been wrong and no longer predict the end of the world. In the 1980s, a lot of guys were predicting the end of the world, and they were wrong then. Around the year 2000, a lot of people were predicting the end of the world, and they were wrong then. So we just need to be prepared every day for Jesus' second coming and not worry about exactly when he's coming back, because it could be at any time. Thanks for tuning in today. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in today. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Thanks. Bye-bye.